0: Good morning, church family. Good morning. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, I mean, really grateful to be here, as always. Uh, there, to preach the word of God to his people by his spirit is such an incredible blessing and a privilege and an honor. Um, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to almost finish this chapter today. We're going to start at verse 32. And by the way, if you kids are paying attention um, I have some stuff here. I know it's bribery and I don't care. Um, there, for any, any middle school or younger kid that's here today uh, that tells me which bingo picture is missing from the slides, I have big bags of sour gummy worms slash whatever else. And one of these also, chocolates. So, uh, and then there's some other stuff in here for anybody... Else, what's that? Middle school and under. Sorry, Pam. Sorry. If you taught middle school, you figure that one out, Tom. You you can work on that one. Um, So anyway, there's. uh, That's if you if you can figure out which bingo picture is missing because there's one bingo picture missing and this week I remember which one. So that's really important also. So there's yes, there's a couple here uh, in this very slide. So. Uh, before we dive into the text, I, I just want to share a little bit about the format today. There's so much candy at my feet. Hang on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, all right, as you, you can probably see, like from the title, the main, the main purpose, the main point or theme to this message is, is pretty well represented in, in, in the passage, and that is the purpose of miracles. But as I read through this text it seemed as though the Lord was also showing me, he was showing me several things that were less obvious, um, but were also instructive things that I think are beneficial to us as a church body. And so, um, you know, for, for, for you and me, and, and, and really for the whole church, and I don't mean just this congregation, but the whole church to understand. So we're going to read this a chunk at a time, and then after we get to the end, we're going to address the purpose of miracles. Okay, but, but as we go... There are some important things to consider, um, and, and one is going to be after each short section that we look at. So uh, again, these, these aren't the main point of the message today, but each of them has value, and most of them will come up again in detail as we go through the book of Acts. So I'm going to ask you to just consider things as they come up and be ready to, uh, to listen to whatever the Holy Spirit reveals to you today. So uh, let's pray. Father God, as you know, um, for no apparent reason, I'm anxious this morning. And uh, Lord, I, I know that uh, I know that you're here with us, and I pray, Father, for uh, I just I pray that you will remind me, God, that, that it's your word that I'm preaching. This is not my own, um, Father. This is based in in your incredible, wonderful, inerrant word, and you share it with us, Lord, because we are. We are supposed to grow and be more like Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that this morning, that is what happens here. I pray that your Holy Spirit works through this flawed vessel into all these other flawed vessels and that we will grow in some way as a result of uh, your beautiful message that's put in us. And I thank you, Father, for how awesome you are and that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and that you raised him from the dead and you proved to us that one day your promise that we will be also raised from the dead is true. And so I ask that each person receives what the Holy Spirit has for them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just a quick reminder. Last week, um, we read about Saul, Saul of Tarsus, and how he was finally accepted by the rest of the apostles. And this week, we're going to come back to Peter. And Peter is is the main human character. I say that because obviously God is the main character in Scripture, but he is the main human character through roughly the next three chapters of Acts. Uh, And so we're going to begin in verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. All right, that's one short sentence. I want to draw attention to the middle of that sentence. What was Peter doing? He was going here and there. Thank you. Right. He was going here and there among them. So first side point, okay? Peter was among the people. Now, who was Peter? What, what was his big role? Foundation of the church? Of the church? Okay, he, he was an apostle. Paul later refers to him as, as a pillar in the church. He's kind of a, a, a spokesman for the apostles. You know, he was the, kind of their front man. Peter was probably the most famous of the apostles, and yet, who is he imitating here? Who, who else was a great preacher of the gospel who taught Peter everything he needed to know about ministry, who also spent his time among the people. Jesus Christ, yes. What's ironic is that for centuries, uh, the Catholic Church has taught that Peter was the first pope, based on a mistranslation of Matthew 16. But do you know how Peter refers to himself? He never calls himself a pope, I can tell you that. In his first epistle, he calls himself a fellow elder. Or pastor. There's no scriptural precedent whatsoever for kingly, aloof behavior in any evangelist or any apostle of Christ. And here's where here's where I'm going with this. There are no celebrity pastors in the Bible. There are no celebrity pastors. I'm not talking about just people that were that were well known, but I'm talking about celebrity pastors, at least not mentioned in a positive context. Okay? I do believe that they show up in passages about false teachers later in Scripture. But But with the apostles, in fact, the very moment that you see people starting to treat them in a way that that ought to be reserved only for the Lord, they freak out. They insist that that person stop, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul scolded believers for trying to elevate their pastors. Dr. Lynn Anderson, he said so eloquently that shepherds should smell like sheep. They should spend their time among the sheep, learning their sheep, teaching their sheep, protecting, feeding, caring for them because they are God's flock. And he has entrusted them to pastor his flock. And there's no call for any person in ministry to vaunt themselves over others. The word minister literally means servant, not celebrity. Okay, so, so Peter's out among the people. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. I mean, wow, that's a pretty amazing testimony. And, And the main point is arguably summed up in the last few words, but we're going to talk about that later. For now, please note that Aeneas was possibly healed without asking for it. Now, I realize this may not be the case, okay? Uh, it's not specified in the text. But if he was fully paralyzed, it's possible he couldn't even speak. So imagine, imagine the difficulty of being in a situation like that. And now, perhaps more poignantly, imagine being this man's family, whether his birth family or whether it's by marriage, perhaps, before he was paralyzed, in a society without hospitals, as we know them, without asylums, as we know them, okay? This, this poor man, someone was caring for him. Someone was feeding him. Someone was changing him when he used the restroom on himself. I mean, can you imagine what a hardship it would be to care for a paralytic in the ancient world? And how difficult would it be for that paralytic to recognize that, that he could contribute nothing to his family, nothing to, to even his own care? What a difficult, difficult situation. And whether he was able to ask or not, it's very clear that Peter saw the need and he knew that the Lord had given him the authority in that moment to heal, and so he did. Now reading on, there was, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, this washing was, a, was the normal way that, that the culture then showed respect for the dead. Because when a person dies, uh, all of their voluntary and their involuntary processes in their body stop, including the muscles that hold in whatever's in, right? And so when a person died, their loved ones would wash them, and they would put them in grave clothes, and then they would have a time of viewing so that the friends and family and the neighbors of the deceased could come, and they could mourn their passing. So who is Dorcas? She was a disciple, right? That's what it says. She was a disciple, she was a student, okay? A follower of Christ, but how is she described? Say it out loud, somebody. Full of good works and acts of charity. charity. Folks, I'm convinced every Christian should be a Dorcas. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I'm already a Dorcas, and that may be accurate, okay? (laughs) Okay? But, but let me explain what that means here, okay? Have you ever noticed that people in the Bible are given names often that are a hint to their future character? You ever notice that? And, and nicknames, just like today, are often coined as a result of someone's personality. And it's cool that this woman's name, uh, both Tabitha in Hebrew and Dorcas, which is Greek, it means gazelle. Now, what image is evoked in your mind when you think of a gazelle? What? Graceful? What? Jumping, and Jumping and leaping, okay. Kind of joyfully, right? Yeah. I think of, you know, like an elegance, grace, and poise. Uh, something beautiful to behold. And do you see this connection? I, I think it wasn't necessarily that she was a looker, but I think she was so, so grace-filled and gentle as to be lovely. That people saw, like 1 Peter says, uh, about uh, a woman not being beautiful because of her adornment. I think she was beautiful because of these good works that she did. And for every Christian, this passage is a reminder of the importance of being full of good works and charity. That's, that's how every Christian ought to be a Dorcas. Sorry, Tom. Um, well, <laughs> Well, it's normal to want to look good. We shouldn't put more emphasis on physical beauty and grace than we do on spiritual beauty and grace that shines through our deeds, okay? God is glorified far more by the latter than the former. Uh, and that really, that ought to be an outpouring of his Holy Spirit living within us. So uh, on, on a practical note, I wanna just, just give yourselves a few seconds, please, and think about a way that you can glorify God with your life today um, by doing something to benefit someone else. Just think about, I'll, I'll wait. Think about it. Maybe write it down. How can you glorify God with your life today by benefiting someone else? Verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, saying, come to us without delay. So Peter rose, and he went with them. And when he arrived they took him to the upper room. I think it's important to note here that the people came to find their pastor. They wanted his presence. And, and I want you to notice, it, it doesn't tell us specifically that they were expecting Peter to raise him from the de- or, uh, Dorcas from the dead. And, and maybe that was on their mind, but Scripture doesn't clarify that. It, it's possible they were hoping for a miracle, but it, maybe they were also just at a loss and they needed some comfort, they needed some guidance. And, and I bring this up because the Bible is actually really clear, okay, that believers should reach out to their elders, which are the shepherd pastors of the church, particularly for prayer. And, and I know a lot of people are uncomfortable with this idea because you don't, you don't wanna put anyone out. You know, you feel, oh, I don't I don't need the, you know, someone to come, they have other things to do. But guys, it's in the Bible, y'all. You know, James 5 is really clear. When you're going through a rough time, reach out. We don't usually know what's going on unless you tell us. And it is, it is a privilege and a joy and our duty as elders to come to you and to pray over you when you're dealing with a physical or a spiritual need. That, that's literally one of the things that elders are for. So, and please know it's, it's not just a blessing for you. It's also a blessing for us to be able to serve in that capacity that God has ordained, okay? So please, use us. And by the way, uh, while writing this manuscript, I noticed something else that isn't in the outline, um, but it's still instructive, I think, for pastor elders. When someone has a true need, we should go. We should go. I mean, Peter says you know, or the scripture says Peter, he, he didn't, you know, piddle around doing this and that. He, he it says he, he rose and he went with them. And I think that's a good word. So back to the text. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. This, this is where we're shown specifically what her acts of charity looked like. You know, she cared for widows by making clothing for them. And truly, I I believe this. Some of the best ways that we express the the grace of God is by providing for those who are among the least of these. You know, widows and orphans were were pretty much near the bottom of of the social totem pole, so to speak, in ancient Israel because they they didn't have any means of support other than the charity of others. Anyway, uh, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said... Tabitha, arise. Now, if this wasn't in the Bible, and we didn't probably already know what was going to happen here, um, if we were just reading this in a textbook and we didn't know, our first thought would probably be, well, that's dumb. Why would anybody turn to a dead person and tell them to get up? But of course it is in the Bible, and we know it's coming, don't we? Uh, uh, But before we talk about that, I really want to point out something. I think it's germane to the subject of miracles, and not just miracles, but of anything that we ask from the Lord. Okay. Notice, in the situation with Aeneas, we're not not given a lot of information, but it sounds like Peter already understood when he opened his mouth with Aeneas that that there was a miracle that was going to happen. He knew God was preparing to do something supernatural through him. But notice the difference. In this case, Peter prayed rather than presuming. Peter prayed rather than than presuming that God had given him the authority to raise Tabitha from the dead. And I kind of wish the prayer itself had been recorded so we could see what exactly it was that he said. I mean, what in the world do you say when you're asking for God to give you the power, the authority, to raise a dead person to life? I'll tell you what we don't see I think it's really important that we don't see Peter trying to name it and claim it without first being certain that this miracle actually was the will of God. How many of you have ever heard of uh, of Olive Heligenthal? I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Olive Heligenthal, it, when I when I tell you a little bit of it, you'll probably go, "Oh, I remember hearing about that." She was Olive was the 2-year-old daughter of one of the worship leaders at Bethel Church in Redding, California, and she died suddenly. She just stopped breathing, and her parents immediately decided they were gonna petition God to bring their daughter back to life. Now, is there anything wrong with that? No, of course not, they, and they asked their church to pray for that as well, and, and that's a good thing, right? It's certainly not impossible for God to answer with a yes. He's done some pretty amazing things, but, but some of some of the prayers that were offered sounded more like demands. Their, 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 their church began to list prayers on their website. Here's a quote from one. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I command the spirit of death to leave Olive now. I speak resurrection life into Sweet Olive's body now in Jesus' name. And I declare Olive will live and not die. Another said, Olive, we, we say that you will live and not die in Jesus' name. Friends, this is not asking God in prayer. This is not petitioning God. This, this is magical thinking. This is trying to speak something into being. And there, 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 some, ah, this is presumption big time, okay? To think that we have that kind of authority. Scripture indicates only God is capable of speaking something into being. And on top of that, Bethel's pastor said, the reason Jesus raised the dead, listen to this, This is a pastor saying this. The reason Jesus raised the dead is because not everyone dies in God's timing and Jesus could tell. Now friends, that is presumption. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I think it takes amazing courage and faith to publicly ask the Lord to raise a dead person, and there's nothing sinful about that. And as, as a father, I am not at all disparaging the parents of that precious child for praying for a miracle. I would do the same thing, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But but for the members of their church to presume that God will answer with a yes and declare it as His will in spite of evidence to the contrary is not good theology, and it will not help a great grieving family, or or those watching from the outside. It doesn't help. And on top of that, to state that it wasn't part of God's sovereign will for a person to die, that's a pretty extreme presumption. Listen, the the people that Christ raised from the dead, they weren't people who died before their time. They were people who died just in time for Christ to prove who he was by raising them from the dead. In fact, that is explicitly stated in John's gospel by Jesus himself. In the story of Lazarus, you know, so, so I, I, share, I share this to contrast. We don't see Peter drawing together all the believers in the city and declaring that Tabitha would rise. Instead, we see him praying privately and then exercising the God-given authority to proclaim and perform a miracle once the Lord showed that it was his will. Now, I'm going to say this and say this is my opinion I do not believe that Peter ever told someone to rise from the dead who didn't rise. I also don't think that God had him raise every dead person that he came across. Church, we should not presume that God gives us authority outside of his sovereign will and plan, because either we believe he's sovereign or we believe he isn't. And if we think that, that we can do something apart from his sovereign plan, the implication is is that we think we are sovereign, and that is both idolatrous and horrifying. In this case, however, the Lord revealed to Peter that Dorcas would rise, and he told her to do so, and she opened her eyes, it says. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand, and he raised her up, and then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. I'll bet. You know, again, I'm not meaning to ignore the impact of this miracle. We're gonna come back to it in a little bit too. But but so for now, let's just say this is absolutely not something that could happen apart from God's supernatural intervention. Okay? For now, let me draw your attention though to something in this situation that's definitely true. Unlike Aeneas, we can know for a fact that Dorcas was definitely healed without asking, right? Because dead people don't talk. Dead people don't do anything at all except decompose and rot and and smell. And just like an unregenerate person who is dead in their sins and transgressions, Dorcas was not capable of raising herself from the dead. A dead person has no internal means of resurrection. Life has to be instigated from outside. And because we are not capable of raising ourselves from death, we should note that God doesn't need our permission to give us life. A dead person can't give permission. And according to Romans 8, a spiritually dead person won't, apart from the Lord providing the ability. God is the giver of life of every sort. Okay, And this is, this is true spiritually. And physically. I love the analogy that Adam Ford uses. He says, when Christians are accused of Jesus being a crutch, he says, Jesus isn't my crutch, he's my defibrillator. So true. So true. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God, in His great mercy, raised us up together with Christ. Thank the Lord that He doesn't need our permission to produce life. So then, so then Dorcas, Tabitha, is given life, and, and, and people got all the proof that they need that she was alive when Peter presented her alive, right? He brings her out of the room and he shows her. He says, look, she's alive. There's, there's such a dramatic difference between someone who is dead and someone who is alive. It's usually not that difficult to tell which is which, right? Usually, at least physically. It's a little harder spiritually, But should it be? Should it be? Shouldn't there be copious evidence of our salvation, of this new life that we've received in Christ Jesus, that we are a new creation in Christ? I'll answer for you. Yes, yes, there should be. Yeah. Do you think that people observing your life from the outside see the life of Christ in you me too based on our actions based on our words based on our social media posts based on our driving uh-huh have you presented your new life in Christ to those observing That's something to consider. You know, if there's something that you need to do or stop doing, okay, to better reflect your new life in Christ, can you resolve right now to ask God to help you deal with it and then strive for a better witness in that regard? I mean, maybe even write something down. You know, if it's in your mind, write it down so you'll remember it later. And again, I'll give you a few seconds before we shift gears, okay? so. So now that we've read these, these quick stories of Aeneas and Dorcas slash Tabitha, and we've looked at some important things connected with those stories, let's take a look at the big question in the title. What is the purpose of miracles? Why, why did God step outside of the everyday and do something miraculous through Peter, in this case, or, or in any case, or one of the other apostles? Why, on rare occasion, does he do so today? because he does. I think there there's one big, overarching answer which can be looked at from several different angles that, that'll flesh out this perspective. And so I'm going to start with what I believe to be the main reason, okay? Simply put, miracles glorify God. Miracles glorify God. Now, by the way, just just for clarity's sake, okay, a miracle by definition is something that God does supernaturally, as I mentioned a few moments ago. So, it's when God intervenes in the natural processes of creation that he is established. Now of course, even even the, the ordinary things in creation glorify Him. the heaven proclaimed the glory of God, right The skies declare His handiwork. The awesomeness of God's creation produces a sense of wonder in us, doesn't it? And some might might say that, well, really that every breath we take is a miracle. And so is every molecule. And, and that point of view, I understand it has a little merit because hey, all of creation was created ex nihilo, out of nothing. And it's sustained by the word of God. And so there is, of course, a supernatural component to it. But a miracle in scripture is either a direct contravening of the rules of nature, or it's, it's a dramatic speeding up or slowing down of the rules of nature. Okay? So, so while we might attribute the word miraculous to certain things like the miracle of life or the miracle of birth for the sake of a strictly biblical definition, okay? Miracles are extraordinary things that God does outside of his normal created order. Now, let's look at how miracles glorify God. Uh, perhaps the most obvious way <laughs> is that he glorifies himself through the miraculous is is that it shows his greatness. He shows his greatness. And I'm using the word greatness in in its fullest sense here. You know, its magnitude. You know, the the, God's omnipotent. He he is is overflowing with power. And that power is only limited by his free choice. That's where we get the word omnipotent, all-powerful. That's who God is. And when God chooses to perform a miracle, it reminds his creatures that creation is Creation subject to him, not the other way around. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're we're surrounded by amazing things in nature. But but one of the depressing things about humankind is that we can become immune to the glory around us when we see it every day. You ever notice that? Anybody here ever lived in Colorado? When you first get there, you see the mountains and they're just so glorious, right? But after a while, they don't just disappear but they just don't seem quite as glorious because you get used to them. When you live on a beach, you, when you have a condo in Galveston, you know, it's the same situation. We see it enough and we start to, to almost, we become desensitized even to God's glory that is so beautifully expressed in creation. And so when, when he supersedes, when he, when he, goes above and beyond the natural laws that he's put into place, we're reminded that what we see isn't all there is, right? And what we see as impossible is as simple as a thought for God. Of course, there are numerous ways that God shows his greatness through miracles, but the two stories that we read today they show some specifics, all right? The story of of Aeneas shows us that God can heal those who are physically disabled, and in a sense, it also reminds us that he sets captives free because Aeneas, remember, he was a prisoner in his own body. I mean, anybody who's ever had a a debilitating injury or a massive stroke or something like that, they can tell you that, that being paralyzed and bedridden is as bad or worse as being in lockdown. I mean, you can't even take care of yourself but God can reverse an injury. He can relieve pain. He can cause synapses to fire and nerves to regrow and and, and diseases to disappear, but he doesn't do it at our beck and call. Okay, God's not a genie. He doesn't respond to our whims. We don't go, Lord, this is what I want. That's not how that works. If he always healed every time we asked, then we'd probably start to think it had something to do with us. We would start seeking the glory that belongs to him. And there are a lot of folks who have made a name for themselves by claiming they have the ability to supernaturally heal people. I've seen charlatans who make YouTube videos where they, they claim that, they're, that they have healing powers. They approach strangers and they ask strangers if they have back pain because who doesn't? I mean, right? If you're over 20, you probably have back pain. And they suggest their back pain is because they have one leg that's shorter than the other. Have you seen this trick? And then they, they use a street magician fakery that's been around for decades, and, and they make it look like one leg is growing. And there are others that, that are claiming to be faith healers that literally have their, their people close to the stage to prevent truly disabled people from getting too close. If you ever watch American Gospel... The, uh, the documentary. There's a man with cerebral palsy that has been to 14, I'm going to name names, Paul did, right? 14 Benny Hinn so-called healing things. And every time he would go up to the front, one of the people at the front would prevent him from coming up to be healed. They would say, come aside and we'll pray. Why? Because a disease like that is too obvious for a fake to pretend to cure it. Now, I want to be clear here. I I absolutely believe in spiritual gifting and in spiritual gifts. And I know there are times that God miraculously chooses to heal people through prayer by his grace. But it's when he chooses because the glory is supposed to go to him, not to us. The power to miraculously heal someone is not inherent to us. And it's not from smacking people on the forehead either. So God reveals his greatness by healing, but I think anyone would admit it's even more awesome when he shows that he can raise the dead. Both the physically dead and the spiritually dead. If we see, listen, if we see a person go through either kind of resurrection, it shows the power of God. Only God can give life, and only God can take a heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. So miracles glorify God by showing his goodness and his greatness. His perfect holy character is revealed through the types of miracles that he does. Through the healing of Aeneas, God showed his goodness in relieving that poor soul of a terrible infirmity. And this, this is a reminder, I believe, of the original state of creation. Okay, In fact, one, one of the qualities of God that's shown in the Garden of Eden and in the integral nature of the Garden of Eden, is that there's no disease, that death doesn't exist, that work was fun. The only real human relationship was completely satisfying, and God created all that, and he said, this is good. This is a reminder that God is integrous. Meaning that his his character is one that values wholeness and completeness. And that is a quality that was originally present in the whole of the world. It was there. What's really encouraging to Christians is knowing that the Lord has determined that full redemption for the human race involves true wholeness in every way. But and this is of utmost importance, it's not going to happen in this life. True, complete wholeness is not going to happen for you in this life. Nor for me. It's never going to happen. Not since creation fell. How do we know this? Romans 8 tells us, it says, it says creation itself groans as it waits for redemption. And Paul says, we groan for the redemption of our bodies, don't we? Some of us groan more than others, right? You know, even you young folks that still may have you know, your health intact and good joints, your spirit longs for the day, right? When there's no pain, when there's no sickness, no grief, and best of all, no sin. Boy, I'm looking forward to that. No sin, and it's coming. <laughs> the day is coming, for for those who are in Christ Jesus but the bible says it's not going to happen in this world okay so if you've ever heard that god never intends anyone to be sick or die or experience hard times then i want to challenge you to read his word and see if that is ever the case and spoiler alert okay not since genesis 3 we need a reminder that we are temporary IT IS GOD'S WILL THAT WE HAVE THOSE REMINDERS. HE WANTS US TO LONG FOR THE FUTURE KINGDOM. THAT'S PART OF HIS GRACE. THAT'S PART OF THE GRACE OF GOD, REALLY, IF YOU THINK ABOUT IT, BECAUSE IF THIS FALLEN WORLD... EVIE, GO SIT WITH YOUR MOM. IF THIS FALLEN WORLD WAS PAINLESS, If this fallen world was free of grief, then why would we long for the next one? Oh, okay. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) God's goodness is also revealed in the fact that miracles show that He is loving. The miracles that we read about today were a man that was freed from a terrible disability and a wonderful godly woman that was raised to serve the Lord in this life for a while longer. And in both of these cases, the miracles glorified God's goodness by blessing those who trusted in him. But let's also, you know, remember that God is just. That's important, too, and sometimes his miracles show his just nature and not merely the love nature. This is the same God that struck Ananias and Sapphira dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. That was just a few chapters ago, right? I mean, be grateful, church, for his love, but don't take it for granted. Okay, almost done. Uh, but th- this is a hugely important point, so, so, so don't check out, okay? Stick with me. I, I, want, I want to draw your attention to the last sentence. In each of the stories today, you can look on your bulletin in certain see. okay? One says that all of the residents, this was of Lydda and Sharon, turned to the Lord. The other says many of the people believed in the Lord. Why? As a result of the miracles that they observed. And I think that God is perhaps most glorified through miracles by leading sinners to repentant faith. I mean, after all, creating a universe out of nothing is pretty cool, but no human being got to witness it, right? But when the Lord does something miraculous, that's sometimes how he, he opens people's eyes to the truth, and he makes inroads to the heart. And Jesus was clear that the purpose of the signs that he did was to show that his witness is true. Who was in the Sunday school class that Craig taught this morning? A few of y'all. Doesn't it tie right in? And isn't it amazing that that passage from John chapter 10 was what Ron did in the communion meditation? I'm telling you, God ties this stuff together, y'all. This is not planned, well, not by us. Jesus had to show that his witness was true. His miracles were intended to prove his claim that He is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He came to bring eternal life for those who believe on Him. And so He died on the cross. The miracle of His resurrection then proved that everything He said was true. And, And then through Him, God does one of the most amazing things of all. He takes His enemies and He turns us into His children. God is good. His greatness and His goodness are shown through miracles. But here's the thing, church. It's not just the people who believe who see the miracles. There are a lot of people who see the miracles and don't believe. And when we looked in Scripture, we see there were people who watched Jesus drive out demons, and they attributed that power to the devil. Anybody in that state, as long as you are in that state of unrepentance, you will not be forgiven. I tell you from the bottom of my heart, a person who is raised from spiritual death to spiritual life is just as much a witness of the power of God in Christ as a person raised from physical death to physical life? Are you that person? Is God showing a testimony of his greatness through you?